Hey everyone, welcome to my first episode of Finding History. Today I'm going to talk about queer life in medieval Europe. In the future, I'll be doing a few more episodes on uh, queer representation throughout history. I was surprised by the amount of information out there on the subject of queer identity in medieval times. I did do my best to narrow down the information I found, so I promise this will not be a two hour long episode. I I think what I'd like to try uh, for this episode is after I explain all my findings, I want to discuss my thoughts and feelings on the subject with you all. I would like to give you all a content warning with this episode. Medieval Europe was very much a Christian slash Catholic empire, and the church dictated pretty much all the laws of the land, which were indeed homophobic, repressive, and upheld the violent values of the patriarchy. I kind of view the church as being another ruling monarch. Uh, Depending on the region, the church held equal or more power than royal houses. Once Europe became Christianized on a uh, broader spectrum, you saw more of a power struggle between the elite ruling houses and the church. There were also definitely rich families who did what they could to gain powerful positions within the church. And, you know, when you let the rich have too much control, well, shit goes sideways real fast. Overall, the monarchy and the church officials would fight over power and control for many more years to come. There will be moments when I mention the punishments and overall violence imposed on the LGBTQ community. Queer liberation has come a long way since medieval times, thankfully, and the rights that LGBTQ people have today come in large part from the fierce dedication of Black trans women and people of color. We still have a long way to go to make sure every member of the community is protected and cared for. With that said, let's start the show. Homosexuality was not a term widely used at the time, nor was heterosexuality. There was simply reproductive sex and non-reproductive. There was the passive partner and the active partner. Passive meaning to be penetrated, and active being the one to penetrate. Sex was not seen as something that two individuals shared, rather it was an act done to a woman. A medieval English text describes that sex is, however, a sin that both parties carry, the man that doth, and the woman that suffereth. For a man to assume the passive role of a woman was considered a crime against nature. You saw this represented in their own art. A bestiary, or a bestiarium vocabulum, is like an encyclopedia of animals, but not so much science-based, more like an illustration of animals, uh, usually accompanied by a moral lesson. This reflected the belief that the world itself was the word of God and that every living thing had purpose and meaning. Animals were used as models of good behavior and bad behavior. They illustrate what moral values medieval people ascribed to, particularly sexual behaviors and forms of gender presentation. One of the most curious examples is that of the partridge. From the Aberdeen Bestiary in the 12th century, it records... The partridge is a cunning and unclean bird, for one male mounts another, and in their reckless lust, they forget their sex. The males fight over their choice of mate and believe they can use the losers for sex in place of the females. This passage demonstrates two important things. First, medieval people regarded sex between men as a transgression of gender roles. By saying a partridge forgets their sex, 
means they forget the gender roles in which they are expected to follow. The partridge is no longer seen as fully male because it has adopted a passive position. The second is the description of the partridge as unclean, demonstrates the other important aspect of medieval conception of sexuality. Procreative sex was regarded as virtuous and necessary for a healthy Christian marriage. The partridge, however, is seen as sinful and dangerous as it engages in non-reproductive sex, also known as sodomy. The 12th century author, uh, Peter the Chanter, asserted that people who engage in sodomy were corrupting the work of God, who had created two sexes for the purpose of childbirth. Sodomy included anal sex, oral sex, masturbation, and the pull-out method. Basically, anything non-reproductive was considered sodomy. Sex for non-reproductive purposes was considered sinful in the eyes of the church, and the punishment for the act varied depending on the city and the country in which one lived. After the bubonic plague hit Europe, many folks were looking for answers as to why they all nearly died. In the Italian states, the most influential religious establishments blamed sodomites for bringing the wrath of God into the populace, and the remedy was to purify the city of evil with fire. Bernardino of Siena was a Franciscan missionary and an Italian priest who was canonized by the Catholic Church for his effort to revive the Catholic faith through sermons in the 15th century. He is also referred to as the Apostle of Italy. His sermons would often include violent retellings of the executions of sodomites in the Italian states. In 1424, he dedicated three consecutive sermons in Florence to the subject. This is what he told his audience. Brace yourself. Whenever you hear sodomy mentioned, each and every one of you spit on the ground and clean your mouth out as well. If they don't want to change their ways by any other means, maybe they will change when they're made fools of. Spit hard. Maybe the water of your spit will extinguish their fire. The violent sermons of Bernardino influenced the city of Florence to establish an office of the night in 1452. The city officials, also known as medieval cops, would place boxes around the city which people could deposit anonymous accusations of sodomy. These accusations would lead to persecution and sometimes death. Now, I wanted to talk about a few of the trials that took place during that time. I'm not too familiar with medieval courtroom protocol, uh, but I do know it was not common for the accused to be given a chance to defend themselves. Uh, there are still a few surviving cases from that time period, but uh, many, many were lost. Uh, we'll never know the actual amount of hate crimes that existed. Um, again, I have to issue a content warning as I will be discussing uh, physical violence. In 14th century Florence, a young boy of 15 years old, referred to as Giovanni di Giovanni, was labeled as a public and notorious passive sodomite, who was said to have been with many men. According to records, he was dragged naked on the back of a mule and punished in that part of his body where he allowed himself to be known for sodomitical practice. Spain shared a similar attitude as the Italian states when it came to the punishment of homosexuals. The earliest documented case of a crime against a trans woman was in Valencia, Spain in 1460. 
Her assumed name was Margarita Borres. She came from a wealthy family, wore the finest women's clothing, frequently partied amongst the elites, and lived as a woman in Valencia until her death. It is believed that she was betrayed by a jealous lover. She was tortured and forced to wear male clothing at her trial. She was spared death by burning, which was the common method of execution for the crime of sodomy. She was instead hung, and her nude body was exposed for all to see. Her family did not claim her body, and she was buried in a mass grave for criminals. The courts of the medieval world did not care to understand female sexuality. I could only find a handful of crimes against lesbianism of this period. That isn't to say lesbians did not participate in sex, but the courts of the medieval world did not care to understand what offense two women committed together unless they mirrored the active and passive roles of reproductive sex. If a phallus was used between two women, they would go to trial, as it would be a woman assuming the role of an active male partner. In the absence of a phallus, lesbian sex did not count. Here is a line from an anonymous poet in the year 1178, as evident that men did not care to understand female sexuality, um, but had no problem joking about it. These ladies have made up a game. With two bits of nonsense, they make nothing. They bang coffin against coffin without a poker to stir up a fire. Katharina Hetzeldorfer was one of the first documented cases of a woman being executed for sex with a strap-on. She lived in Germany and sometimes presented as male. By this I mean she wore male attire. There is no record of her going by a different name other than Katharina. Therefore, it is impossible to know if she was trans. The crime she was charged for was wearing male attire and using a strap-on with two women. The strap-on was made from red leather and polished wood. There's also some record of married women in the Italian states using a phallus with each other. The wives of Italian merchants would partake in the use of a strap-on or a dildo while their husbands were away at sea. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that sex toys were definitely a black market item in medieval Europe. Now let us go north to the land of northern lights, stinky fish in a can, and bearded menaces known as the Vikings. Pre-Christianization, the Vikings did not regard homosexuality as a crime against nature. However, they believed that for a male to assume the passive role was a sign of poor leadership skills and that they lacked strength. It was assumed that if a male preferred to be passive, it affected him in all aspects of life, that he would expect others to fight for him, and overall he would be a poor warrior. It was made fun of, often referred to as Ar Arger or Egri, I'm not too sure the pronunciation, uh, which translates to unmanly. Being used homosexually by another man was equated with cowardice because of the custom of sexual aggression against vanquished foes. Vikings raped to humiliate people they terrorized. To be a passive partner was to be humiliated. While no record of Viking lesbianism is available, it's widely assumed that wives would partake in sexual acts with women in their husband's harem. 
Vikings would marry one woman, but created a harem-like structure in their own home, acquiring women from inferior social classes. Viking wives could develop a bond with other women under their roof. Viking women were scarce. Exposure for infants was a common practice in Viking culture, and females were often left exposed to the elements. This left fewer women in their society. Women who survived to a reproductive age would be married. If a husband had objected to his wife having a lesbian relationship, there would be little he could have done about it, as Viking women did have the power to divorce their husbands. I'd like to point out that while I was surprised by the amount of information I found, most of the articles focused on male homosexuality. It was kind of a struggle to find information on women or transgender individuals, but I think that really is just a reflection of a world hell-bent on not understanding female sexuality, nor wanting to understand any sort of gender identity that deviates from the standards set by the patriarchy. I keep throwing that word around a lot, patriarchy, but... When I'm saying patriarchy, I'm referring to both church and monarch. As I mentioned before, they were, for the most part, equal oppressors. I do believe that uh, heterosexuals who practiced sodomy, um, aka non-reproductive sex, did face some sort of punishment, uh, but it typically was never as aggressive as uh, homosexual people would receive. Like, uh, typically they would have to do maybe penance or uh, fast for a while, uh, but they typically did not face death. Um, In the case of Bernardino of Siena, he hated sodomy straight up hated it he felt it was responsible for like literally everything for floods for stillbirths for plague famine oh everything like if the sun was too warm it was sodomy bread not rising sodomy if you got a migraine well you probably committed sodomy and he said that the reason populations weren't rising fast enough uh post-plague world was because of sodomy so I mean, y'all, we need to be careful because we are in the midst of a plague and I would bet money that thinking is, uh, this sort of thinking is going to come out of retirement. Um, I do think that he felt that sodomy in both straight and gay relations were awful. However, uh, due to his many sermons on the subject of gay sodomy, I think it's fair enough to say that he was a raging homophobe. Uh, But you guys will like this. Uh, I did find record that after one of his sermons, he was beaten up by a group of irate sodomites. So a bunch of queers, after he spoke about like hating them and how dirty they were just beat his ass which is fantastic and this was probably the best news that i have found while researching this subject i think to this day we still tend to view sexuality in passive and active roles now we do have the privilege of identifying who we are and exploring our sexuality but there are many who believe to be in a passive penetrated position sexually is a sign of weakness whether gay or straight This is a hyper-toxic masculine thought, as receiving pleasure does not make one weak. And while we have more gender fluidity with the clothes we wear, many parts of the world still consider clothing to have a gender and colors to have a gender as well. Pink for girls and blue for boys is still used for gender reveal parties. Cross-dressing was a charge brought up against Joan of Arc. Even though she claimed to wear male clothing to protect herself from rape, the church still considered it heresy. The thing with Joan of Arc is, yes, she dressed in male's clothing, but she was not trying to be male or present as male. She did it for her protection, as stated before. 
Um, but the issue men had with Joan was the fact that an illiterate peasant, because medieval Europe uh, didn't really give a fuck about educating the poor, uh, could gain such support and love from the people of France. Uh, she took attention away from ruling leaders and was herself seen as a leader. Uh, she was a threat to the order of the, Fr- of the French patriarchy, so they destroyed her. Uh, gay or not, she had to be dealt with. And yeah. It sucked. We also see that men are still unable to understand the connection two women can have. I dated someone who told me that lesbians can't fuck unless they have a dildo. I mean, the audacity that an intimate act, uh, that sex between two women can't be considered sex because a dick-like shape is is nowhere to be seen is absurd and incredibly stupid but he isn't alone Uh, many people believe sex without penetration isn't actually sex and therefore they don't care to understand it which is just uh, i said it before absurd and incredibly stupid there's so much we do not know nor will ever know we do not have any surviving account of someone in the Middle Ages declaring they were gay or bi or trans. And uh, this, to me, is one of the greatest losses of history. I think it's very sad when people are denied uh, their own truth and they're denied the freedom to live life how they want to live it. And it it, it breaks my heart, but um, this much is made clear uh, that queer identity has existed long before it even had a name and has survived in spite of violence and persecution. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Finding History. I am your host, Victoria, and until we meet again, stay curious and stay safe.